So, thank you, Hajna. so for anyone who's coming for the first time today just a few introductory remarks uh, we've been reading from this book called The Heirs of the Prophets. It's a translation of a small essay by a scholar who lived uh, roughly 600 years ago named Ibn Rajab and Hanbali. He's known as Al-Hanbali, but Ibn Rajab. The text is a commentary on one statement of the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, peace be upon him. <coughs> that talks about the idea of seeking knowledge and so on. I recognize that some of the conversations in the last two sessions, I think perhaps even more in the last session, have, I won't say fallen off the deep end, but they went perhaps a little bit further than some people who were anticipating them going. Uh, and so I would like to just remark in the beginning that this is part of the challenge of these gatherings okay so part of the challenge is that as we said we want to try to do a couple things one of those is to have a comfortable community setting where people can have some food together get to know each other check in with each other so on and so forth um that you know without kind of like the normal barriers of community life sometimes and the second side of it is that we want to learn together and we want to worship together Part of the challenge of that is that um, people will inevitably be in very different places, right? So you might have someone who comes and they're totally new to Islam, or someone who comes and they're relatively new to Islam. And you might have someone who comes and they've been around this thing for 20 years, you know, they've been studying and reading and attending lectures and so on and so forth. And so part of the challenge uh, that I'm responsible for at some level is how do you navigate that? And so, uh, you know, quite simply, uh, I think that if we do some of the things that I mentioned, like try to think of the gathering, not only as a gathering of knowledge, but a gathering of worship. So sometimes the knowledge might be uh, a review for you, but you're looking at it like, you know, alhamdulillah, I'm in this gathering, there's Muslims here, we're praising Allah, we're seeking Allah, the angels are coming to the gathering, they're, they're surrounding everyone, they're taking, because we know that from the hadith, right, that when there's a gathering where people mention and remember God, that the angels surround that gathering and they take the names of the people in that gathering to, to heaven and to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so like all of that stuff is, is part of, um, like if I keep that in mind, even though the knowledge piece is a little bit review for me, then alhamdulillah, I'm okay. And if I keep that in mind, when the knowledge piece is a little bit too much for me, then alhamdulillah, I'm okay. You know, we still benefit from the gathering and I'll try to not spend 
too long on one side or the other, but sometimes things need some deliberation. There are some matters of, um, you know, the way I look at a lot of this stuff, and by the way, children are generally welcome. You know, sometimes they might make a little bit more noise, less noise. It's okay. I mentioned this last time. Uh, if obviously if they start making a huge amount of noise, then we can try to deal with it accordingly, but uh, generally it's okay. Alhamdulillah. There, there's probably more blessing in the sounds they make than the sounds I make. So it's okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so some of these issues intellectually, the way I look at it, is that our brains and our hearts and our brains are somewhat connected, right? Like in, in the way that we understand, um, in the way that we understand understanding in the Islamic tradition is that it's a relationship between the heart and the mind, the heart and the brain. So it's not just like, you understand something purely intellectually, but we understand things through a combination of the faculties of the heart and the mind, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that it is not uh, their eyes that went blind, but it is the hearts that are in their chests that went blind, right? So it's the heart that they can't see with. And uh, this is a very common issue. People who have worked in like academia, actually, subhanAllah, people who have worked around people who are very advanced in whatever field they're in have probably seen this very clearly. Like you have someone who's really, they really know their field, but their spiritual diseases are so profound that it completely blocks them from understanding things. And so you see that from Pharaoh said this, Allah mentions from Pharaoh in the Quran, that Pharaoh said to his people, I'm only guiding you to the right path. <laughs> Pharaoh was like, it's me. I'm the one guiding you. I'm, I'm the one taking you to the right path. He's Pharaoh, right? He's taking his people to hell. But he actually believes he's taking them to the right way. You know, and, and this is true across the board, <clears throat> because, again, the, the spiritual maladies that the person has will, uh, will interrupt their ability to comprehend something. So, for example, very simple examples, like if I don't like somebody and they come and they say something true to me, am I less likely or more likely to accept the truth? Less likely, right? They come and say something that is totally true. She's like, man, I just hate this guy. Like, this guy is always a problem. He's always saying things. He's always has a comment. He's always like picking on me. He's always so when he comes to me and he says something, I'm going to reject it. But in reality, is it true? It could be true. And vice versa. Like someone you really love them. Sometimes love also blinds. You know, there's a hadith actually that says this. Uh, that love makes you blind and deaf. <laughs> you know, it makes you like you you don't understand. So so we have to kind of have this um <clears throat> levelness you know part of true spirituality is a level of is a is a is a matter of being level being sober like of course you have moments where you enjoy them and you love them and there are moments of, of bliss and joy and everything else and you have moments of sadness but these people will be very level like uh i remember one time we were we were in umrah actually i make a lot of mistakes so uh, on, a, on a personal level, I try not to make them in teaching, but on a personal level, I make a lot of mistakes. And whenever I'm teaching, I'm always like, should I share this? Should I not share this? Like, really, probably I shouldn't. But at the same time, it might like people might be able to connect to it a little bit. Anyways, I'm going to share it since I already went down this <laughs> route. So we're in Umrah. And for whatever reason, I was having a bad time in Umrah. It's, I know, shocking. 
If you knew me, you'd know that it's not shocking. The crowd's having a tough time in Umrah. And it's not always that you tell everyone that you're having a tough time, right? But I was having a tough time in Umrah. And <clears throat> one of the shuyukh was there also. He had like his own group. We managed to overlap the times. So I was sitting with the sheikh at breakfast. And this was like at the end. I've already gone through uh, like a week of, <laughs> of problems, you know, uh, and not being really what I should be. And uh, we're sitting at breakfast. And we're just talking. I didn't tell him yet. No, I didn't actually say anything to him yet. And he looks at me, he's like, how are you? I'm like, I'm done. you know, all right. And, uh, you know, we're talking. And then, he, and then he stops and he says, you know, he started talking about his teacher. He's like, you know, Sheikh so-and-so, he's like, these people, no matter what they were going through, what you saw from them was the same. And it's, this is not, some people might hear that and they'd be like, well, they're not in tune with what they're going through or they're checking out or they're not, it's not actually what it is. It's like, that, this is the paradox. How do I feel completely what it is that I'm feeling without necessarily bringing it out to affect everyone else's life around me, right? Because sometimes we might have those downs, but it doesn't mean that I have to bring everyone else down, which I was actually doing. Uh, one of my, uh, I said, <laughs> there was another sheikh who was there and he, we saw him, he was coming out of the haram and I was going in, in one of my situations and he was coming out and he was like the opposite. He was glowing, you know, he was like beautiful and glowing and he was so excited and I hadn't seen him yet and we exchanged salam and everything. And we say stems and he looked at me and he saw my situation and then he just kept going. <laughs> it's like, I'm not dealing with this right now. So I always I was like, I, I put some qabd on his bust. You know, like qabd is when you have constriction and bust is when you have expansion. So it's a bad thing. But anyways, that was my experience. But my point is that there's some soberness to that. Like he's talking about his teacher who was a great, great sheikh. Great, great sheikh. And he's saying what we saw from him was always the same. Like he, when he's really excited, you see the same. And when he's really down, you see the same. There's like a levelness, you know. Surat, uh, what is it? Surat al-Hadid, I think. Right? Allah says that so that you don't have despair about what missed you. And so that you don't have tremendous joy over what you received. So Allah is mentioning this. Like there's... You experience joy, but just don't go too far. You experience sadness, just try not to go too far, you know. Uh, so anyways, real spirituality is like that. I have no idea why I got into that right now. Um, but, you know, we'll try to bring different things in. Inshallah will be a benefit. So let's continue. <clears throat> as, a, as another side point, other than the children, if there's questions that you have, especially as relates to something in particular that I'm covering. Like sometimes there's a question that's very easily delayed to the end where, you know, we can have kind of a bigger discussion on it. But sometimes there's a question that has to do with, like you said this particular thing, I don't really understand that word. Or you used an expression, I don't understand that expression. You use this, this concept, I don't know what that means, you know? Please feel free to ask those kind of questions. Like maybe in the, I, I try to translate things, but at the same time, there's a number of kind of words in the Muslim lexicon that you just kind of pick up over time. Uh, and so sometimes I forget. So if I say something, please just remind me, Shalom.
قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفر الله بعلومه في الدارين أمين The author says the following May Allah give him and us benefit through his knowledge in this life and the next Amin. Knowledge is the essence of guidance So the hadith, let me read the hadith again just so you can be on the same page The hadith, the statement of the Prophet A man came to Abu Darda, Abu Darda is the companion, while he was in Damascus Abu Darda asked him, what, was, what has brought you here, my brother? He replied, a hadith which you relate from the Prophet Abu Darda asked, have you come for some worldly need? He replied, no. Have you come for business? He replied, no. You have only come to seek this hadith. He said, yes. Abu Darda then said, I heard the messenger of Allah, peace be upon him, say, whoever travels a path seeking sacred knowledge, Allah will place him or her on a path leading to paradise. The angels lower their wings for the student of sacred knowledge, pleased with what he or she is doing. The creatures in the heavens and earth seek forgiveness for the student of sacred knowledge, even the fish in the water. The superiority of the religious scholar over the devout worshiper is like the superiority of the full moon over the other heavenly bodies. You might hear that and be like, well, technically the moon is not as big as the stars and don't think about it like that. When you go out on a dark night, your experience is the moon is much more overwhelming than the stars, right? The religious scholars are the heirs of the prophets. The prophets leave no money as a bequest. Rather, they leave knowledge. Whoever seizes it has taken a bountiful share. Okay, so that's the narration. So he starts, he says, the reason the path to paradise is made easy for the student of sacred knowledge, if he desires Allah and his pleasure, is explained as follows. Knowledge directs one to Allah from the most accessible paths. Therefore, one who travels its path without deviating from it reaches Allah and paradise by means of the most direct route. The routes leading to paradise have all been paved for him in this world and the next. As for the one, <clears throat> as for one who travels a path without knowledge, thinking it is a path to paradise, he has chosen the most difficult and severe path. Such a person will never reach his destination despite tremendous exertion. So uh, in this text, as well as other texts, if it says he, you can pretty much assume it means he and she. Um, they're just going with the default in the Arabic as well as English uh, previously. So <clears throat> there's some points here. First point he's saying is the one who takes the path to Allah based on knowledge, then their path is made easy for them. Um, This is actually when you see it, it's a really beautiful thing. So this is what I was this is why I was trying to say earlier. In our head, we're trying to understand our religion. We have a bunch of furniture. You know, like over the course of our lives, we got a couch and we got a chair and we got this TV and we got another chair and a dinner table and another chair and like a bed. And we put all this furniture in our head that was our religion. But oftentimes, all that furniture in our head, it needs like some sorting, some organizing. It's like, wait a second, it doesn't make sense to put this bed right here, right in front of the doorway. I can't actually get into the room because it's blocking the door. Or this table is like on top of the couch and it's upside down, you know, and the TV is facing the wall. Like, right, you have a TV, <clears throat> but you don't have a TV properly. So then what happens is you're trying to use, you're trying to live in the house. And when you're trying to live in the house, it's not working out properly, right? Like everything is messed up. This is actually a lot of our understanding of our religion. It's sometimes like this. And like I said, it's not like Allah has his qadr, Allah has his decree, Allah has his wisdom and what he does in the world and so on and so forth. It's okay. It's part of life. It's part of life that we understand things in a particular way. 
And then at some point we might realize that they were actually not that way. And we try to adjust and we adapt and we change, you know, uh, Muslims, we should, like people have been Muslim for a long time. You should just think about like what a, what a convert feels like, you know, like you become a Muslim and a lot of your world turns upside down. Now, a lot of it, if it, and this is where true knowledge is, is good, is that not everything has to be changed, right? Like some things, you just leave them. They're fine. But some, some major things are probably going to change. Like if I didn't believe, for example, that I'm going to be accountable for my life and stand on the day of judgment. And now I do. That's a really big shift. You know, if I didn't believe that God existed and now I believe that God existed, that's a huge shift. You know, even like the convert who grew up in religion and then becomes a Muslim is different than the convert who grew up not believing God at all. And then they become a Muslim. Like these are big things. Right. And but Muslims, as we grow up, as people grow up too, like there's sometimes things change. Right. And as I mentioned before, uh, you know, like I'm not a stranger to this. Uh, you know, I became a Muslim and then I realized very quickly that I had to do a reboot, like I had to reformat the drive. And then another year passed and I had to reformat again. And then another year passed and I had to reformat again. And then four or five years passed, I had to reformat again. You know, so it's okay. Like it's, it's, this is part of life. And we learn from that and we gain wisdom in that. But the path, what you realize with time is the more correct the knowledge is, the path becomes really clear and very direct actually. SubhanAllah. Like, uh, Sometimes you see people that they might not be Muslim or they might be Muslim, but not care. But they have like a good head on their shoulders. They have a good heart and they don't have all the baggage. Right? And you come and you give them just like this is this piece goes here and this piece goes here and this piece goes here. And they go fast, subhanAllah, like they just fly. And you're like, it's amazing. So on the other hand, the one who seeks a path to God without knowledge then this is a very dangerous thing. Path to God without knowledge is a very dangerous thing. And, you know, like, uh, for to be honest, <clears throat> the Western educational model basically teaches you what? It teaches you, I'm supposed to have an opinion on everything. And that's what, you're, that's what they teach you to do. Like, okay, what's your opinion on this? What's your opinion on that? And if you want to advance in your career, you have to produce something new. Right? Here's a new idea. Nobody else said it before. And what that does is sometimes it makes us so that we're really dependent on our own ideas when we probably shouldn't be that dependent on our own ideas. Like it's good. Obviously, think for yourself, be critical, all of that kind of stuff. But there's a lot that's already there. Like I don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot that's already there. So, uh, you know, these are kind of big topics. One of the other issues here is that if people are going to serve in the community, how do I say this politely? <laughs> Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he said, tafaqahu qabla an tusudu, or qabla an tusawwadu, in two different narrations. Sayyidina Umar, he said, get knowledge and understanding of the religion before you're in a position of leadership. And his reasoning was that if you're in a position of leadership, you have no chance to learn. You, you'll gain experience, but you don't actually have a chance to learn. And... Um, this is a hard thing, obviously, you know, we're, we're obviously, we're often functioning with limited resources and so on and so forth. So I don't want to make it so that nobody does anything. Here's, here's the main takeaway. The main takeaway is that anyone who's serious about their religion should have a regular connection to understanding and growing in their religion, period. And Juma does not count. 
Okay, Juma is an act of worship. You go, you get a reminder. Inshallah, you feel good afterwards, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe you don't, but ideally you feel good afterwards and it does something beneficial for you. Um, that's fine, but that's a reminder. That's not something that really like, what is really tying me to this religion, right? It's really interesting because when we were talking about this idea of like the Senate, the chain of narration in the text, this is, this is an understanding. Like I want to have things that tie me. Like I imagine in my mind, I imagine before me, there's this huge body of, of religious practice and understanding and commitment and so on and so forth. And every time that I say, I believe in Allah and I believe in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, I'm making a claim to be connected to that, right? I'm making a claim that I'm connected to that. So the general rule with any claim is, what's the evidence of your claim, right? <laughs> like what makes you really say that you're connected to what came before you, right? Um, so getting having this lifeline, I consider it like a lifeline, you know? Have someone or something that you're connected to. One of, one of the statements of, of the early scholars that people sometimes struggle with, I struggled with it the first time I heard it. So I'll give you that disclaimer. But I would like you to think about it. You should really think about it. He said, uh, one of them, he said, uh, that someone who doesn't submit themselves, I'll, I'll, we'll talk about, we'll unpack that a little bit. But someone who doesn't submit themselves to anyone in particular will not benefit from anyone in general. Okay, what does this mean? Some people would see that and be like, oh, well, you know, I don't have to have like one teacher. No one's telling you you have to have one teacher. Uh, but if you have no teacher, you're not going to benefit from anybody because you're going to be all over the place. And believe me when I tell you that this tradition is extremely vast. And look around our community. Everyone justifies everything by Islam, right? <laughs> like actually my, my leaning usually is that I'd rather justify as little as I can by Islam. Because everyone justifies everything. Like this person beats their wife and justifies it by Islam. And this person is abusive to their children and they justify it by Islam. And this person is completely like extreme, note the word choice, extreme feminist and they justify it by Islam. And this person is extreme anti-feminist and they justify it by Islam. And this person's racist and they justify it by Islam. And this person is like a socialist and they just, everyone's justifying it by Islam. So this religion is extremely vast. If you think that you're going to dive into, like, you don't just, you don't know how to swim. You don't just jump in the deep end, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, the pool looks really nice. I'm going to go. It's hot. Well, what's going to happen as soon as you jump in? You'll be like kicking and swimming and throwing your arms and like swallowing water. And what am I going to do, right? I don't know what to do. So this, this idea is actually really interesting. It's not saying that you can't go benefit from other people. but saying like, you should try to find someone who you trust their intellect you trust their knowledge, you trust their spiritual commitment, you trust their practical example, you trust their character, all of these kind of things, and try to benefit from them because they'll keep you steady. They'll help you to understand all of the other things that you get exposed to. Otherwise, you just end up all over the place. So this is part of like, when you try to do things and there's no knowledge, then there's no knowledge, right? It's not a, where are you going with it? There is no path to experiential knowledge of Allah leading to his pleasure and his nearness in the hereafter, except through the beneficial knowledge 
which Allah sent down to his messages and revealed in his scriptures. This knowledge guides to the right path. With it, clear guidance is sought out from the darkness of ignorance, ambiguity, and doubt. Allah has referred to his book as a light from which one is guided through darkness. There has come to you from, a from Allah a light and a clear book. Uh, it's interesting verse choice. With it, Allah guides those who pursue his pleasure to paths of peace, and he brings them out of darkness into light. So clearly Ibn Rajab has chosen the, the tafsir here of a light being the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Many co scholars commented on this verse and said the light is actually the Prophet Because if you look at the verse, there has come to you from Allah, from Allah a light and a clear book. So if you say that the light is the Qur'an, then there has come to you from Allah the Qur'an and the Qur'an. You know, there's probably some other interpretation for how you would do that. But anyways, point is that this knowledge is a light. As I've said many times before, the and, and paradigms are important. Uh, like how we look at things is important. Right? How we look at things is important. I've said many times, we'll do it again. Knowledge is what? Knowledge is? Huh? Power. Okay. And ilmu. Al ilmu, anyone who speaks Arabic. Al ilmu nur. Al ilmu nur. Knowledge is light. It's a very different perspective. Knowledge is power is a very different perspective than knowledge is light. Makes a huge difference. Like if your understanding of it is knowledge is only about power, it's a very different understanding than knowledge is about light, right? Illumination. Very important what he says here there's no path to experiential knowledge of Allah. Uh, except through the beneficial knowledge. So this is a really foundational point, okay? There's make, he's making a distinction between two types of knowledge, right? He says there's beneficial knowledge Allah has revealed in his book and through the prophets and Allah and wa them, and there's experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge and the other knowledge, okay? Knowledge that Allah has revealed through his book and through his prophets and Allah and wa them, that's obviously outward knowledge, right? Like, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, this is who Allah is, this is who the Prophet is, all this stuff. It's actual physical knowledge. We sit down, we read the book, right? What's experiential knowledge? Huh? Knowledge through experience. Yeah, it's knowledge through experience, right? So what's the difference? Anyway, what's the, what's the difference between these two? You actually have to do it, okay? So it's almost like doing it is like the road to, so if you have this outward beneficial knowledge and you have experiential knowledge, the road that takes you from one to the other is doing it, okay? But then what, what is it actually? Something you actually feel, right? It's experiential, like you're actually feeling it, right? It's an, it's an experience that you have. And we know this, right? Because especially in our community, many people have seen, usually with their grandparents, right? Usually if they have a grandparent who is like a religious person, they see experiential knowledge really clearly with the grandparent. Because they're like, subhanAllah, this person just has iman. They just have belief in God. It's unshakable. Like we, we know one lady, she was a grandparent, she passed away. She was very old and she couldn't do a whole lot. And she would complete her reading of the, and she didn't speak Arabic. And she would complete her reading of the Quran in the end of her life every three days. Every three days, she finished the entire reading of the Quran in Arabic, right? 
and her body was really weak. So the doctors were telling her and stuff like, you can't do this. It's really bad for your eyes. It's bad for your back. You just sit here, you're reading for like eight hours a day, you know, reading the Quran. You have to stop this. It's going to make your, you know, it's going to affect your life and so on and so forth. And she was very simple. She's just like, and what life do I have if I stop reading the Quran? Like, why would, why would I do that? <laughs> you know, like, why would I want to be alive anyways? If it means that I'm going to have to stop reading the Quran, then I'm just going to like, I might as well die anyways. I don't have any reason to be here. Right. So these people had like really unshakable Iman, you know, if you no matter what. And sometimes you even see this up to today in terms like people might not even be that, quote unquote, religious, but their Iman is unshakable. You know, I met people before like, uh, mashallah, the ladies, she's maybe I shouldn't say that, but I have met people before who like people would look at, for example, this woman. And not think that she's like so religious or something, because our community sometimes is very judgmental and very ugly. So we will, some people will look at her and say like, oh, she's not this or that, whatever. You talk to this woman, you're like, this woman would die without any hesitation to defend this religion. And she will have so much izzah and so much strength and so much power and so much like she would stand up against armies by herself. And people will look at her and be like, oh, she's not religious or something, you know, because we're, we're dumb like that sometimes. Um, but the point is that that's something in the heart. That's something in the heart. A lot of people have like this knowledge. This is what students of knowledge always go through. And that's why these books, they really emphasize this. Students of knowledge have a big, students of like Islamic knowledge have a big problem with this. Because you sit down and you study and you study and you study eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. Then you become like sheikh or you become imam. And then like everybody asks you things and you have an opinion on everything. And mashallah, you can answer every question, even though really you can't, but you start to think that you can. And like, you know, all of this stuff and all of that is just external knowledge. Like all of that, that's not tapwa. Like that's expertise. Great expertise is really important. You know, if we had to choose between asking a question to someone who has expertise, but is not like as mutaqi versus asking someone who doesn't have expertise but they have tapwa i'd probably ask the person who has expertise because this one at least you won't ruin my life uh by giving me like he won't tell me something's haram when it's not or like tell me i have to you know get out of this rela relationship with people or whatever else it might be anyways you get the point experience and knowledge is very very important this issue is really important that's like we 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 learn what we learn and we do what we do so that we can actually taste what it means to have a relationship with god that's the goal of the whole thing. Like, I want to actually know God. I want to actually have a relationship with God. I want to really love the Prophet, I want to feel that. But I want it to be empty and dry and without, like, any flavor to it. I don't want it to be like that, you know. And subhanAllah, you know, like, different peoples have different tendencies. You know, different cultures have different tendencies. Um, <clears throat> one of the beautiful things about the trip that we had to Colombia was that my wife, she was giving a, a halaqa on one of the days, like a study circle to a group of women. Most of these women, some of them been Muslim for a long time, but some of them are newer converts, stuff like that, right? But they very much have a culture that believes in God. Okay, they have a culture that believes in God. We, for the most part, don't, at least in Southern, in California, different parts of America might be slightly different. But in California, we, for the most part, don't really have a culture that believes in God, right? So she was like, when you're speaking and it has to be translated, it doesn't have the same rhythm to it, right? Like you say one sentence, 
someone translates it, say another sentence, someone translates it. So she's like, I would say one sentence and everyone in the room would start crying. She's like, subhanAllah, like, this is amazing. I'm just like, this is just a regular statement of the Prophet that we would say in any, in any kind of gathering, you know, that the believer, uh, <clears throat> nobody loves, nobody truly believes until they love for their brother or sister what they love for themselves. And then like they would translate it, everyone would start crying. Like the heart is alive, you know, the heart is really, like that's, that's experiential knowledge. There's something to the experience of religion. <clears throat> The Prophet ﷺ put forth a parable between the possessors of knowledge and the stars that guide people through guidance, through the darkness. Imam Ahmed relates from Anas that the Prophet ﷺ said, Anas عنه, is uh, from the companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him. He's from the senior companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in terms of rank. Not necessarily in terms of age, but in terms of rank. Anas ibn Malik, he was also from the scholars of the companions. And Anas has a particular distinction. We get a lot of intimate narrations about the Prophet from Anas, Sayyidina Anas, because he's the one who served the Prophet for 10 years. Remember, you know, the famous narration where the boy says, I was the servant of the Prophet, <clears throat> for 10 years. And he never once said to me, why did you do this? Or why didn't you do that? And he had the best character and so on. This was Sayyidina Anas radiallahu anh. He served the Prophet. Like, this was his mother. This was her educational model. It's a different educational model, right? Like, you don't have compulsory schooling and all this kind of stuff that we have now. Uh, so she had this child. And she was like, you know what? I'm just going to have my child be the servant of the Prophet. That's going to be his education. We get a lot of our religion from Anas, actually. He's one of the more uh, higher narrators of hadith. So... Ennis then is in the house of the Prophet for 10 years, serving the Prophet, doing whatever he asked him to do, spending time around him, spending time around his family, so on and so forth. So he's the one who gives us uh, this narration, just to give you a little bit of background. He narrates from the Prophet, peace be upon him, the similitude of the religious scholars on earth is that of the stars in the sky, by which people are guided through the darkness of the land and sea. If the stars are extinguished, even the guides might stray. That's really amazing, actually. The similitude of the religious scholars on earth is that of the stars in the sky, by which people are guided through the darkness of the land and sea. If the stars are extinguished, even the guides might stray. Even the guide, right? The person who takes you through the desert, but they watch the stars to know where to go. They know the desert. But you take the stars away, even they might get lost. And they're like someone who really knows what they're doing, but they lost their... They lost their true, their, their stars, they, they lost them. May we never lose them. <clears throat> it's like the most uh, scary thing, you know? Losing parents, there's two things I fear for in my life. It's how I'm going to respond when my parents die, if I live longer than them. And how I respond if my if my if my sheikh stop, you know, like I don't know how you get past that heartbreak. Allah helps. Uh, just as a reminder, and it's going to come up later, a person who does not act upon their knowledge is not considered a scholar. So anytime you hear one of these narrations and you immediately start to think about like spiritual abuse, quote-unquote, cases, and I'll, I'll tell you why I'm saying, quote-unquote. 
spiritual abuse cases and all of these other issues and people who betrayed their trust and so on and so forth. Just remember that every single narration is conditioned upon the person actually doing what they know. If they're not doing what they know, they're not a scholar. Actually, they're ignorant, very jaded. They're, they're not a person of knowledge. So just keep that in mind. I said, quote unquote, because I have a somewhat extreme position and it's getting more extreme actually by the day that um, I feel that we need to be really careful about buying into other people's language. So language usually has some connection to meaning, right? Ideally, language, ideally also I say, because a lot of times we use words that we don't even know what they mean. And everyone who's using the words is not even meaning the same thing by the word that they're using. It's part of the reason why in Islamic studies, everything starts with definitions. Like, what does this mean? And what does this mean? And what does this mean? And what does this mean? So we're all on the same page, right? But now we have plastic words. Everyone says one thing, they use one word, everyone means something different by it. There's no actual meaning to it. Uh, but ideally, words indicate meanings. And what that means is if I find myself speaking with a lexicon that is completely defined by someone else, then I have now subject myself to their definitions. It's just something to think about, especially for people in like college settings and university settings and stuff, because universities now they tend to have like a certain dictionary that if you use these, then you're like the people who matter and you're the people who have opinions that should be listened to and so on and so forth. And all of that is, but just never forget that the word is about a concept. You know, like if we're not dealing with the underlying concept, uh, there's a problem. So spiritual abuse, I'm a little bit, I'm becoming more and more uh, concerned about the term because I think people are using it now in ways that is like, like we have to ask ourselves some tough questions sometimes. Like if I was to use this framework that I'm using right now on some of the incidents in the life of the prophet, peace be upon him, am I going to believe in the prophet? Or am I going to say, like, that was an issue of spiritual abuse? Or that, I would have been that, you know? But, like, if you were to apply the same rules, you'd probably end up with that conclusion on the prophet. You'd probably end up on that conclusion on some of the companions, right? So you just have to be very careful about these things and how we do it. So, like, I'd rather just say that someone betrayed their trust. You know, we have an idea of amana. Amana applies in different places and cases. Each person has a different amana. They have a different trust, responsibility that they have. A parent has an amana. A teacher has an amana. An imam has an imama. A student has an imama, amana. You know, and some people will betray it. Anyways, you can think about that on your own. We don't have to hash it out. These are all ongoing discussions, right? Yes. Uh, on this, the saying of uh, Sayyidina Anas Al-Mahdi, is that homework or is that a theme? Relates from Ennis that the Prophet said. Yeah, so it's a hadith. It's a very good question. Try to pay attention to that kind of stuff, by the way. Because um, <clears throat> we got that lesson early on. It was actually from Imam Suhaib. He gave that lesson pretty hard to, uh, I think it was Muslim one time when she was in college. I think it was when we were in college. And she came and asked a question like, I think I heard somewhere that like there's something about this or that. And he was just like, look, stop. <laughs> like, we don't do things this way. Like, if you're going to come, don't come to me like, I think I heard something, but like, I'm not sure who said it. I'm not sure if it's a hadith or not. No, like, pay attention and tell me what it is. Is it a hadith? Is it a statement of a companion? Is it a statement of some random person? Is it a statement of a person of knowledge? Like, some of the people come to me, they're like, I heard this and this. I'm like, well, so where'd you hear it? 
Because it might be that I didn't hear it, but you've heard it from a source that's trustworthy. Or it might be that I haven't heard it, but you heard it from a source that's not trustworthy. So now we're going to have a different conversation <laughs> based on what you're saying, right? So this is this is a great question, Mashallah. The page that we're on, nine, page nine. It's the section of knowledge is the essence of guidance. I don't know if there's multiple versions, but page nine, yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the scholars are the heirs of the prophet, are the heirs of the prophets is actually the statement of the prophet. Um, how we define it is going to come in all of these pages. Like chapter four gives categories of scholars. Chapter three gives knowledge of the tongue and the heart. But um, like very briefly, how would we define a scholar? So let me start with, uh, it's, it's a little bit more difficult than it sounds. You know, you feel like, okay, that should be pretty easy, but some ways it's not, some ways it is. So obviously this is going to change with time. Like someone who's a scholar in the time of the companions of the Prophet, they've been with the Prophet, they know the religion, they have a certain understanding of the Hadith, they know the Quran, right? And they live their lives with a level of righteousness and taqwa that qualifies them for this position, right? But as time passes and you have kind of like um, a broadening of the religious sciences, the actual knowledge side of it actually becomes more, right? So there's more to know as time passes because time has passed and these things have been developed. So how would, in, in our time and place, uh, I'll give you the ideal definition of a scholar for me based on all of these things. And then I'll give you maybe like a more practical one, okay? So the ideal definition of a scholar for me is someone who, first of all, they've mastered the outward sciences of Islam. So that means that they, they know the Quran, they know the Hadith, they know theology, they know law, they know spirituality, they know the various disciplines that are related to them, and they know them well. Generally speaking, in the Islamic studies curriculum, usually for the most part, there's like three core levels of study. There's the beginning level, there's the intermediate level, and there's the advanced level. Usually someone who's studied at like a solid institution has medium level in a number of disciplines. I mean, someone who's finished like a bachelor's at six, seven years type degree. They usually have like a medium level of knowledge in the various disciplines. They might have beginning level in some of them. They might have advanced in some of them, depending on what they like emphasize. So someone who graduates, like someone who graduates an institution like I did, for example, is not a scholar in, in my understanding. Um, they would need to be advanced in all of these disciplines. So this is the first point. What we find practically speaking is that many people are not advanced in all of these disciplines. So you might find that someone spent their life in law and they're really good in the law. But when it comes to theology, they're actually really weak or, or vice versa. 
or also very common is they might be really strong in theology they might be really strong in law but they're very weak in spirituality like they don't really have a good grasp on the spiritual the tradition of learning in the spiritual tradition and so on um so ideally they've mastered all of those things and then also related to it is that they do it so like they're actually a person that you feel that they have some taqwa you feel that they that you know they they're not like openly going against the sharia on anything um they they're very much following what they do and there's there's a flavor to it you know that would be the ideal scholar again like i said because a lot of times people are not especially now because our curriculums are not designed like that now islamic studies curriculums for the most part are not designed to make a person masterful in all of the disciplines at this point uh, they used to be like that so oftentimes people will have inadequacies in certain places but i'm still okay with that as long as they have the taqwa side so if they have like if they're pretty strong in different things and they're pretty advanced and they're advanced in like they're at least medium level in every discipline and they're advanced in a number of them i will still accept that they're a scholar <laughs> if, they, if they have some taqwa to them uh but basically you're not going to do this in under like 20 30 years like you, you need and, and i mean 20 30 years of like study and practice and not like five years of study and then you're just you know working five years you know most people like me we forgot most of the things we studied at this point now you know let alone uh, other people so you know literally, i hope that helps a little bit do you have any follow-up so you mentioned that it changes over time um, and I understand why it changed over time. Scientists all remind me of the doctor of the problem science doctor of the right? But it, it seems contradictory to me to some extent because the problem said the scholar, you know, they're the prophet, and at that time the body of knowledge was on the problems. So now things <clears throat> Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we as a lady, right? Are we not here? It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, <clears throat> so, the knowledge of the Prophet, it's a very interesting question. Why does it evolve at some level, right? It evolves because, say, the Prophet وسلم, he gives us a basic understanding of what it means to believe in God and the Prophet. Okay, fine. Right? Short. Sure, sure. Before you decide to answer. Yeah. So the problem I have, the problem I have, I want to learn. Right. So you start with Quran, you start with Hadith, you start with Sira, and then you go into like these topics. And they go on and on and on forever. There's so many different things, these are so many different things that we are everything, right? Sure. And it becomes just like, wow, mm -hmm. like you said, no one can really master all of it. Right. At this point, yeah. Okay. So then the word scholar kind of doesn't have a definition. So what do we as a layman do? Like, do, yeah. I, do I study all of us? Text of the or is it all the text of Pesbia, or do I focus on what you said to go find a thinker, pick one? Then the problem we have to though is that I pick one, and he picks one, and you pick one, 
and then I see you pray or I see you do something. Mm -hmm. The brother, the scholar is saying you should do this. Mm -hmm. It's an incorrect statement, but I mean, not that you're saying that, but I'm saying that the person, yeah, okay, yeah, this I mean, is all really great. This is the, there's so many things to say about what you said, it's so good, but uh, I'm gonna forget certain pieces, so we're gonna have to come back to it, inshallah. Yeah, but the question is, so what do we do as, as lay people? Excellent, it's really good, mashallah. Um. So good. It's, 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 it's just really good. Like these are these are really core questions, right? So yeah. No, 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 go ahead. I'll give you an example. My dad grew up in Pakistan. Yeah. And he moved here in the 70s. And he has his mind of his Pakistani Islam. Sure. But I grew up in America. And I learned from people like you and shit. Here and, and you know, on YouTube, right? Sure. The, the, the scholars that are scholars, I don't know what to call them, right? right? That are trained, right? And then there's a lot of contradiction. Sure. A lot of power. For example, my, my father would say something like, Oh, the Prophet said that you must go to the most important to you. Mm. But, the, but the shape says, Go to the large and, and we're both, neither of it's really wrong, right? I wouldn't say one is wrong and one is right. But we have these conflicts, and this is like the baby's version. Right, 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 right. right. Much bigger than right. So, yeah. This is so good. <laughs> I just don't know how to wrap around, wrap my head around. Be, like every one of these things needs comment. And it's really important that they get them. Yes, I do. In the of a separate situation is that because we lack basic religious literacy, our part of the time, uh, we can confused easily and we don't have a level of start. Right. I'll obviously confirm the big part of time where I'm probably afraid about if I can get married or not get married, if I can be tied to be learn my basic alpha, learn my basic spirituality. And that should be the baseline of how all lay people can be. And if you want to study more, then that's when you do something like a shake and in, go over the institution, study. But um, my understanding is always about learning the part of life. You know, the, what's in common, apparently, most of what we call means to uh, study the basics of religion. And then, of course, there's going to be this lab or issues with me. Uh, intricacy of logic, data, whatever, but then those are the discussions that we shouldn't really be getting too involved with because that's going to cause more confusion. And then we have a lot of people have a lot of doubt and confusion. And I don't know if we have the scars to map that. So, mm -hmm. okay. But the books are there. You know, that's how you get confused. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to this question. Um, So as like for now, at, at this time, I would say that someone who's a scholar is someone who has at least at some level, they've mastered this tradition. And what this doesn't mean that they've studied everything, which is impossible. It's impossible to study everything. It's but, but they understand what they need to from each discipline and they know where to place it, 
This is a big point, right? They know where to place it. And they know how it works. So if they wanted to go further, they could go further, you know, or if they had the time or whatever. Now, um, I would I, I will say that I think that a lot of, well, I don't know. I think that there's a level at which some of the confusion that we have is the fault of the teachers. So it's like sometimes teachers don't really put things where they belong. And because they don't do that, so like, for example, you'll say, you said, I might learn how to pray, and this other person will learn how to pray, and then it'll be slightly different. And the person will come and they'll say, well, the scholars have said that you should be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. Well, that person, either they came up with that themselves, which is wrong, or the person who taught them taught them wrong. Because the person who taught them should have been telling them, this is one way that is established and legitimate to pray. And other people are going to do other things, but we're just trying to get your right, you right right now, you know. So they, if if they were taught that way, they wouldn't go do that to someone else. But the reality is that a lot of people, when they're teaching other people, they're teaching them as this is the only way to do it, and this is the right way to do it, and all of these other people are wrong, and all these other people are misguided, and so on and so forth. And then you're going to have problems for sure, because like you're not going to get rid of. The Hanafi school, <laughs> you know, like you're not the vast majority of Muslims for all of Muslim history followed the Hanafi school, right? And you're not going to get rid of the Hanafi school. But I remember, like, when when I first learned how to pray, literally going to my father who comes from Pakistan, right? Like my father's from Pakistan, and telling him word by word that you people didn't understand your religion properly, and you didn't, and you didn't know the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And that's why you were taught to pray without raising your hands when you go up and down from Rukur, which is a completely stupid thing to say. And part of that was because of my own arrogance and my own mistakenness in the way that I was understanding and, and reading the religion at that point. And part of that is the, is the mistake of the culture that I was around in terms of understanding the religion. So uh, where do we start as laymen or lay women or lay people is... Uh, is at that first point that I said before. So actually, and, and here's the thing, when people say like you start with the Quran and the Hadith, like, yeah, I mean, kind of. Like you start with trying to know how to read the Quran and have some sort of relationship with certain foundational Hadith. But a lot of our problems are actually because people are just going and reading Quran and Hadith and they think they understood it correctly. And they're like, oh, now look, brother, it's in the Quran. It's in the, it's in the Hadith. The Hadith is very clear. I've, I've told my story before that I almost made a fadiha out of myself. Complete scandal out of myself when we were in Egypt. I don't know if I've told it here in San Diego. There was like this, uh, we used to go to this program. <laughs> it's a side tangent, but it's an example. We used to go to this program for like whatever, you know, students. And these scholars used to come. And there was a, a teacher that used to come. And every time he would come, he would sit down, and he'd give his lesson. And while he's giving his lesson, he's excited and stuff. He would pick up his coffee with his left hand and drink with his left hand. And I was just like, I don't care who the person is. Like, this, the sunnah is the sunnah. And I was with someone else who was with me. And I would tell him, I'm like, Echi, like, the sunnah is the sunnah, bro. Like, I got to say something. We can't just let this slide. Like, the sheikh is just drinking with, like, it was serious, you know? <laughs> He's drinking with his left hand every week. And, like, 
And the brother who was with me, you know, we were studying together. He's like, he's like, what's that? He's like, what's good? Like, stop being, stop being an idiot. Just shut your mouth. Like, don't, don't make an issue out of this, you know. It was good advice. <laughs> Next week comes, he does it again. It's like, shut up. Next week comes, he does it again. Alhamdulillah, I listened to the brother. You know, I didn't, I didn't actually say anything. Some time passed. And I realized, like, okay, what's the principle? The principle is, if you want to understand the Qur'an, you look to the Arabic language and you look to commentary on the Qur'an. If you want to understand the Hadith, you look to the commentaries on the Hadith. That's the general rule. You don't just make it up yourself. You read a Hadith. Why am I so upset about this? Because the Hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, where a man was drinking with his left hand, and the Prophet ﷺ told him, drink with your right hand. And he said, I cannot. And the prophet said, then let it be that way. And the man's right hand became paralyzed and he could only drink with his left hand after that. It's a very severe hadith, right? I believe in the hadith. And we have to follow it. Like, look, the hadith is so clear and the hadith is so severe. Hadith is actually not that clear, right? Because if you really think about it, isn't that like a really harsh consequence for just drinking with your left hand? If you really thought about it. Okay, so here we go. This is a good point. So, so finally, some time passed, and I'm like, you know what? I need to look. What are the commentaries on this? What did what did people? What did the scholars say about how to understand this hadith? You know, that's what you're supposed to do. But I was coming from the background of, you just read the hadith and you do the hadith, right? Which is a wrong methodology. It sounds really funny. People are like, what are you saying? You know, but it's actually the wrong methodology. You don't just read the hadith and this is the hadith. Uh, so I read it and I found that three out of the four schools say that it's disliked to eat or drink with your left hand, but it's not how three out of the four schools. So I was like, Alhamdulillah, <laughs> this brother was with me and he saved me from being an idiot. Um, and what is their, and then what is their reasoning on it? They say, it's very, they say, look, it's too harsh of a punishment for, for, because the general rule here, you go back to general rule in matters of etiquette is that if there's a command from the Prophet and an issue of etiquette, that it's recommended and not required. And if there's a prohibition from the Prophet in a matter of etiquette, that it's disliked, but it's not haram. That's the general rule. Usually you see something like the Prophet commanded it, so it has to be required. No, not necessarily, actually. It depends on the issue. So three out of four said that it's uh, disliked and not prohibited. And their reasoning, so then they say, what? so what's going on in this hadith? What's going on in the hadith is that the guy was drinking with his left hand and he could drink with his right hand. And the prophet to his face told him, drink with your right hand. And he said, I can't. Like he straight up, the prophet, the prophet told him something straight to his face that he should do, that he could totally do. And he said what he said. And the prophet was like, then let it be that way. If that's what it is, that you can't do it. And his hand, be, and he could only drink with his left afterwards. So like this is, anyways, this is a huge side point. But the point of it is to say, start with the Quran and Hadith, yes and no. Like, start with maybe some issues in the Quran that are very clear, but how would you know what that is, right? So this is, the first rule is, you, everyone, anyone who's trying to study the religion, they have to have a teacher. And this is something that the printing press, we kind of lost a little bit, for better or for worse. It's good that people have access to knowledge and stuff. 
but it's not good that they just make up whatever they feel like whenever they feel like it yeah sorry i went past the kids class again i keep getting in trouble for that um our agreement was when the kids class finishes if i'm not done she's just going to send all the kids over here so get, so get ready <laughs> um or, or they're gonna like come you're gonna start seeing them coming through windows and stuff so go back to what edgar said where does the average person, where are they supposed to start with their religion? Average person where they're supposed to start with their religion, again, is that this stuff would, like, there's basic aqidah, you learn it. If you learn it from someone who knows what they're talking about, they're not going to go too far. They're going to give you just enough. And they might give you some understanding of, like, where other people might disagree, but this is what you should know. And then you'd be like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. If I don't want to do more, I don't need to do more. Right? If and then when it comes to like fiqh or halal and haram, what's allowed, what's not allowed, there'll be a basic text. You do the basic text. If you don't want to study more, you don't need to study more. You know? Like I don't I don't want to many people don't really care for fiqh very much. Fine. Let's just sit for like four or five hours. We teach you how to pray properly, teach you how to purify yourself properly, teach you how to make fast properly. And then when issues come up, you just ask someone you deal with it. You're done. You don't have to worry about it. And then you have baseline. There's this baseline knowledge, right? My opinion is for the average person, you get your baseline knowledge. You get your aqidah. You get your fiqh. You get your spirituality. After that, you want to read about the life of the Prophet them. That's wonderful. The life of the Prophet them. actually, it's a little bit harder to go wrong with it. Because your conclusions are not going to be as fiqh-based. They're going to be more like, oh, it's, you know, he was brave and he was courageous and he was merciful in this time, but he was strong in this time. And like, you learn life stuff. It's alhamdulillah, beautiful. And we try to practice the issues of spirituality and we try to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's, that's it, you know. And that person knows everything that they need to know. And they're fine. It's completely good, you know. And we don't need to like... But the, the part of, again, how things change is, for example, up to today, you might find someone who the baseline level of aqidah that everyone should know is very simple. It's like Allah exists. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has nothing similar to him. He's not in need of anything. And he's one, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he has knowledge and he has power and he has will. And, you know, this is Allah, you know. We're good. <laughs> but for the average Muslim who's going to a university, I don't think that's sufficient anymore. And even for like in old books and stuff, they would say this is sufficient for the person. But if the person starts to have doubts, they have to go further until their doubts are answered. So the reality that we have now on the ground is that anyone who's like probably in high school, definitely in a major university, that baseline level of aqidah is probably not going to be sufficient for them. They actually probably need to go a step further. So, you know, that's why things can kind of shift in terms of what's required from the average person. But these are all really, really good questions, you know. What would I tell someone if someone's starting from zero? What would I tell them? In aqidah, the Ahlul Sunnah, the Orthodox Sunni Islam, and aqidah is the Ash'ari school, the Maturidi school and the approach of Imam Ahmed. Choose whichever one you want, study a basic text. All of them have their basic, all of them have dozens of basic texts because every land all over the Muslim lands has their own usually basic texts. 
you know, it's, it's perfectly, they're all going to be the same, or they might like have one small thing added or subtracted or something, but they're all going to be the same. Pick one and study it. When it comes to fiqh, pick a madhab, study a basic text in the madhab. You know, a madhab is like a methodology for understanding the Quran and Sunnah. So the main four in Sunni Islam are the Hanafi school, the Maliki school, the Shafi'i school, and the Hanbali school. Pick one, study a basic text. That will give you one answer on what you should do in purification and prayer. It tells you what you can do for yourself. It doesn't tell you what you should be telling anyone else. If you want to talk to other people about these things, then you have to spend another 10 years and study all of the schools. Otherwise, you don't have business talking to anyone about it. Like you're just, you, you learned for yourself. If you want to learn so you can talk to someone else, now you have to know the whole picture. And that's why I said, like, the person has to put it in the right place. Like, okay, this is, what I'm teaching you is the Hanafi school. The Hanafi school is one of the four schools of Sunni Islam. It doesn't represent the whole picture. It represents an, a method, an approach, and a conclusion that's agreed upon to be acceptable and how we worship our Lord by all of the Muslims. And it's one of the approaches. You go to the other, you know, people can do different things. And this is a problem I'm going to have in the Islamic school. That's uh, If your kids are in the Islamic school, they're all going to be Hanafis. <laughs> yeah, we can argue about it afterwards if you want, but you know, you have to make a choice somewhere. Otherwise, they're not going to have anything. They're not. They're just going to be like, oh, does bleeding break my wudu or not break my wudu? I can't remember. This is what they're going to do for every issue. They're not going to be able to remember. Is, this, is it this way or is it that way? I remember three opinions. I don't even remember which one. You know which one I should be doing or whatever. Like it's going to be a problem. So, anyways, these are some comments on this. If you want, we can, because I know I missed some of the things you said. If you want, you can re-raise them. We can go back to them because there are a lot of things I think that it's really good to discuss them. Okay, and I think that uh, I hope that over the course of time, like as we go through more things and people will understand kind of like the approach that I take and why. And you can ask questions, of course. You know, this isn't like, a, you should you should ask questions. You say like, okay, so what's your approach to this? What's your approach to that? Why? That's not what I've heard before. How can I understand this? Like, as long as you're not being rude, it's fine, right? The problem is when people are rude. They're like, no, you're an idiot. I haven't heard that before. Like, well, maybe you just haven't heard that before. Maybe I'm not an idiot. I, I might be, but, <laughs> you know. Like, we should talk about it because it's a lot of things they need review. There's a lot of issues. Like, our like I said, our religion is vast. You have to understand, we have a religion that has one book, right? One book, the Quran, much of which is general. It's not specific. The general, the rule for the Quran usually is that it's general. It's not specific. Some issues are specific. The rule for the example of the Prophet, them usually is that it's specific and not general. The example of the prophets and alone why they were them. So now you have these two sources and they go everywhere for 1400 years. You're going to have like a lot of variation, a lot of things to work through. But we do have what's important to know is that we do have an agreed upon orthodoxy. It's not a free for all. There, there is actually an understanding of what is, is Sunni Islam and what isn't. And the approaches that were adopted and the approaches that were used over history. There's no... There's no, uh, there's no break. It's not like this is an inherited method 
of how to understand this religion from the time of the Prophet and his companions and their students all the way up to today. There's no break in it. This is, you know, and some things will change because methods will change. Some things will change because application of principles will change. But the principle didn't change, right? It's the consequence of it. So, you know, may Allah help us. And may Allah give us understanding. So, anyone else have any questions or anything? Comments? Yeah. Uh, yes yes so we're in san diego you might as well address the elephant in the room uh many people in san diego will tell you that the only school that is except how do i say this without opening a huge can of worms they'll tell you that the only school of aqidah that is acceptable is the approach of the people of hadith probably they'll say and in hadith which they are using to refer to the approach the approach of imam ahmed which i mentioned is one of the three whether or not what they're referring to actually represents the approach of imam ahmed is a deeper intellectual discussion um, but like i said generally for these things there's no break so if there's an approach that imam ahmed took to aqidah then the followers of Imam Ahmed in Aqidah would be following that approach every single generation from his time up to today. So you should be able to see that. Like in the Hanafi school, for example, you say we're following the way of Abu Hanifa, you see a connection between the texts and the methodologies and their applications in the school. You see a connection, right? You don't see like all of a sudden someone appears 800 years later and is like, no, I'm the true follower of Abu Hanifa and everyone else was wrong. That's not... You don't see that. You see a connectedness to the tradition. Anyways, so you might hear people say they're the only ones that are correct. And the Ash'aris are people of Bid'ah and the Maturidis are people of Bid'ah. And they might not, Maturidi, and they might not even say the word correctly. I've seen some YouTube videos recently uh, where like the Taz turned into a Ta and all kinds of things. I'm like, how are you even saying this? So the Ash'ari school in Aqidah is attributed to Imam Ibn Hassan and Ash'ari. This is basically in like, I want to say the third century. I'm not an Aqidah specialist. Um, I'm not actually a specialist in anything, but let alone Aqidah. Uh, but anyways, it's Ibn Hassan and Ash'ari. The Ash'ari school in Aqidah is generally followed by the Shafi'is and the Malikis. So you have schools in Aqidah, you have schools in Fiqh. Generally speaking, any scholar who was Shafi'i or Maliki, and every scholar had a madhab, just so you know, like very, very few exceptions. Basically, everyone had a madhab, and all the names you hear. So they'll be Ash'adi usually. So An-Nawawi, for example, An-Nawawi is very famous. He's Shafi'i. He's Ash'adi, uh, regardless of what some people would like to claim. Ibn Hajar Asqalani, great you know, scholar of Hadith. He's Shafi'i. He's Ash'adi. Uh, I don't know, if you throw out any name, I, most likely I can tell you which method they are, but and I might not be able to, but most likely. Anyways, the second major group is actually the Maturidis. The Maturidis, Maturidis, like in Arabic, Maturid, what you want, <laughs> Maturidi. Uh, so that's Abu Mansur al-Maturidi in his school. And then you have the approach of Imam Ahmed. The Maturi, Hanafis are generally Maturidi. Unless they live in like Egypt or something, sometimes they end up being Ashari because Ashari's are more in Egypt, but uh, they're generally that category. 
vast majority of Muslims and Muslim scholarship throughout history were one of these three in terms of like they were Shafi'i, Maliki, or Hanafi. The Hanbalis throughout Muslim history were a numerical minority in fiqh and in aqidah. Uh, although like their approach in aqidah is not so different than one of the approaches in the Ashari school. But anyways, uh, these are the three. These are the three. Um, so the issue with this is that if you say that the Ash'aris and the Maturidis were both people of innovation, and they're 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 Muslims, but they're not part of Ahl Sunnah, they're not part of Orthodoxy. If you say that, then easily like ninety to ninety-five percent of all of the scholars and all of Muslim history were unorthodox. Which means what? Like, are you going to believe in your religion at that point? I don't know if I would. Like, if someone came to me like, look. 90% of all the people that represent your religion throughout history were all got it wrong. I'd be like, mm, I'm a muahid. <laughs> you know, I can't believe in one God. I mean, I, yeah, that raises some really interesting questions, you know. But generally, we say that these three are the Ahl Sunnah when it comes to Aqidah. They all have their text. Uh, at the Majlis, we've We've, uh, you know, on Wednesday nights in Orange County, Sheikh Fouad teaches, and Sheikh Fouad is actually like a legitimate specialist in Aqidah, which is not so common in the West. A lot of people have started using these titles, you know, they're this and they're that and they're a theologian and stuff. But like 10 years ago, they used to say theology is a bid'ah, but now they're a specialist in theology. And you're like, okay, that's really interesting. But, you know, he's actually a specialist. He teaches on Wednesday nights. He's taught these, he's taught at least two foundational texts in the Ashari school. And the videos are on the Majlis YouTube page. You can watch them. And if you have questions, you can sign up for his office hours and ask him questions. And show yes. Anyway, there's three. Yes. It's very important. His, his class is redoing now, getting your mind right, or getting our mind right. Um, he had done that class three years ago before we recorded everything. And uh, I asked him to redo it because it's really important. It goes through all of the intellectual history of Islam. And now actually he's, the last couple of weeks, he's in uh, like Greek philosophy. So it's, <laughs> it goes all in, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's really, it's good, yeah. Someone, I had two more here and then we didn't come. Is it related to that or is it different? Okay, go ahead. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So we're talking about Islamic philosophers, quote unquote, <laughs> and um, Sufis, which is also a big thing. Uh, where do they fall into these into this issue? So. Generally speaking, the where we did philosophy is in the realm of aqidah and ilm and kalam. So when we say aqidah, ilm and kalam is like the knowledge of speech, technically, but it's like, how do you do this dialectic theology thing? And usually that's where we did philosophy, which means that 
for the most part, Muslim philosophers, quote unquote, they were actually specialists in Aqidah. Not only did they follow one of these schools, they were like the leading thinkers oftentimes in these schools. Some of them, however, especially when the West categorizes them, some of them broke on certain positions and maybe like had, sometimes they took positions that were not actually representative of the orthodoxy. People like Ibn Sina and stuff like that. Um, but for the most, like if we're not talking about just three or four people, we're talking about thousands of people that did Muslim philosophy. They did it from the angle of Kanam. They did it from the angle of Aqidah. And also actually the Sufism question is interrelated at some level because that's like, sometimes deals with issues of metaphysics that go beyond the immediate scope of what's usually understood in Ilm Kanam. So there is some relationship there. But generally speaking, uh, any scholar who was who was positioned in the Islamic tradition as a like you know legitimate Muslim scholar was following one of these schools in Aqidah. Generally speaking, you can assume that. So like all of the, if you think of like any names of people who were uh, like known as Sufis, um, they all follow these schools in Aqidah. And actually, this is a, it's a really important point to make. Because, uh, you know, another cat is out of the bag, but like Tasawwuf and Sufism, quote unquote, is a central part of Islam from the very beginning up to today. The issue is, and the people who were most critical of Sufism were the Sufis, because the issue is that whatever spiritual practice someone is doing, it has to be founded in the Aqidah and it has to be founded in the Fiqh, in the Sharia. And if it's not, then it's not actually Tasawwuf. It's not actually Sufism. So that's by definition. So they would be grounded in these things as well. And it would be assumed, part of why like people will read some, like sometimes people will read, for example, like Ibn Al-Ta'ala, secondary, rahimahullah, and he'll have some statement on spirituality. And they're like, look, this is an evidence that he was deviant. Well, it's only an evidence that he was deviant if you assume that his aqidah was wrong. But if you know that his aqidah was actually sound, then you would interpret this in a way that doesn't make him deviant, right? And that's now you get into bigger issues. But all of these things, inshallah, we'll unpack them with time. <laughs> Let's come back to the sisters. Short answer to your question. Usually you can assume that they'll fall into one of these schools in aqidah with some variations. There are people who kind of like had their own positions, you know, but it's not so common in the grand scheme of uh, the intellectual history. Yes. Okay. So the Aqidah of Imam Tahawi, the Aqidah Tahawiya, is definitely a representation of the approach of Imam al-Maturidi, although a Tahawi is a contemporary of Maturidi. But a Tahawi will tell you the same thing that Maturidi tells you, which is, I trace, and they were in very different places. I think I mentioned this last week at some point, or it might have been somewhere else. They're in very different places. One is in Egypt, one is in Central Asia. But both of them are going to tell you, we trace what we're saying back to Abu Hanifa himself. And of course, Abu Hanifa traces it to the Prophet So you'll find that actually, even though Tahawi and Maturidi are contemporaries, and but his text is accepted 
because, and he says in the in the opening of the text, the Tahawi says, this is the aqidah of the fuqaha, fuqaha al-Milla, Abu Hanifa and Abu Yusuf and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. Like he specifically says, this is the aqidah of Imam Abu Hanifa and his students. Uh, so it's it's accepted as, a, as an acceptable text. It's accepted by Ash'aris too. Um, because the differences between the Ash'aris and the Maturidis are very limited. I can't list them off the top of my head. But some people said they're six, some said they're more like 15, but they're very limited. Uh, and they're generally like secondary issues. They're not primary issues, even though there is one that's more central. Um, so the Ash'aris and the Maturidis are very similar. Here's the main difference between those two and the third one is that they position themselves in a way to say, this is what we believe as Muslims. This is why. And this is how we respond to other people. And this is how we respond to the philosophers and the Greek philosophers and the Hindus and everyone else. And we're going we're gonna to do this whole thing, right? And the general approach of Imam Ahmed is, this is what we believe, and we're not going to talk about it. This is just it. <laughs> accept it, don't accept it, engage with it, don't engage with this. This is what it is. We believe in it. That's it. So that's generally the approach of Imam Ahmed's school. Uh, so it's a lot simpler in that regard. It'll just be like, this is the beliefs, you're done. You don't, there's no level past level one in a sense, right? Uh, the other ones go way past level one because now you're dealing with how do I engage with all these other people? Okay. Uh, those are your three questions, right? Yeah, alhamdulillah. You also had your hand. Why does that debate even exist? <laughs> it's not only in San Diego. <laughs> there have been some times throughout history too where it's come up, but so. Human beings are still going to be human beings, right? Like, there's going to be people who are in this group, and there's going to be people in that group. And sometimes they're going to get along, and sometimes they're going to use any justification to fight with each other for whatever political or power reason, which you would see. Um, but if you look at the core issues involved, the Hanbali school is basically part of the other two schools. Because what they say on that basic aqidah is not different than what the other two say on the basic aqidah. And the other two would just build on it and take it further. So actually, it's, it's all there. Um, there's been places and times where there's more controversy over these things than others. Um, and there have been like legit scholars in each of them that will kind of like reject the others. Um, but again, like sometimes when you look at what are they really saying? Or what was the social circumstance of what they were saying and stuff like that? The larger brush of it is that these three are Ahmed Sunnah. Uh, so you might find that like nowadays you'll have some Ashadis who will say that, uh, like the other one, they'll say that Hanbali is not even a school in Aqidah. And I think part of that is a reaction to like, you know, propaganda that said like, okay, you guys are not Ahmed Sunnah. And like it's kind of like a response. But they do have a point too, in a sense, because their point is 
the Hanbali school is not a school because they decided not to do that, <laughs> right? Like they just said, we believe and that's it. Like there, there's no school to that. It's very, it's very simple, right? So if we're saying like, what are schools in Aqidah would be the other two, but you know, uh, I think some of it is social, some of it is political, some of it is, and some of it is just difference of opinion. There's been, there's places in history, there's people in like big people in history who said things like Abu Hanifa only knew 20 hadith and his school is rejected. There's people who said it, but the vast majority of Muslim scholarship is like, no, that's complete nonsense and it's not true. And okay, like we just reject that. That's the point of like a peer review process, right? Is that sometimes someone will bring a position and they'll be like, okay, that doesn't, doesn't hold water actually, you know? So that's the most I can say on that, not being a specialist, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Okay, we have to go one by one. Who was the first one? Ibn Arabi. Okay. Ibn Arabi, I'm assuming is there's two Ibn Arabis. So there's Ibn Arabi and there's Ibn al Arabi. Uh, they were both Maliki. But I think Ibn al-Arabi was Maliki. I'm not actually 100% sure. I'm not, I'm not sure on Ibn al-Arabi. Uh, I believe that he he's actually a unique. He's a very interesting figure. So he kind of pushed the boundaries on some things too. But And there's also a lot of things that are attributed to him to many, that many scholars just say that it's not likely he actually said them. Because that's a thing in Islamic history too. It's like if you write a book, it's copied by hand, right? So people can add things. So like it's, so Ibn al-Arabi is a little bit controversial, but let's go to the other three. Ibn Abbas. Ibn Abbas is a companion of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So he predates the Madhabs. So it doesn't really apply to him. What are the other two? And Ghazali was Shafi'i and Ash'ari. Yeah, Shafi'i and Ash'ari. And he wrote in both. Like he wrote extensively in fiqh. He wrote a whole curriculum. He wrote a beginning text. He wrote an intermediate text. He wrote an advanced text. He wrote a number of works in, in Aqidah also. Yeah. And the fourth one was Ibn Atala. Yeah. yeah, Ibn Atala is uh, Maliki and Ashari. Maliki Ashari. Anyone else? Anything? <laughs> Ashari, basic Ashari Aqidah. Mm. Yeah, I would recommend that you listen to the classes that Sheikh Fuad did at the Majlis. One is called the Creed of Oneness, and the other one is called uh, the Minor Redaction, which is a funny English thing. Sogra Sogra, if you remember Sanusi. So. And then both of those actually have translated with commentary in English. Both of them are translated with commentary in English. Uh, I don't remember what the first one is called in English, but it has like a green cover. And the translator, I think his name is like M-I-T-H-A or something like that. It's, it's quite good, actually. He did a good job. And then there's a, the other one is called like the Sanusi Creed. 
the, the Sanusi Creed, S-A-N-U-S-I, S-A-N-U-S-I. These are also later works. They're meant to be like shorter. Mr. Howie, for example, is very early. So it's, its style is very different than the later works. It's much longer, deals with a broader range of issues. Tahawi, there's some good commentaries on Tahawi that are out there in English too. Like Sheikh Hamza Mabul's is quite good. You can listen to the audio. And uh, I don't know if there's commentaries published in English. There's of course Sheikh Hamza Yusuf's translation, but it doesn't have commentary. South Africa? I think it's South Africa. Yeah, I've seen that one actually. I think I have that PDF. Yeah. I've seen it. I haven't read it, so I can't say anything about it. But it's, it's probably okay. All I can say is uh, I trust Sheikh Fouad. Anyone else? By the way, just so you know, like when I say I'm not a specialist in Aqidah, I really mean it. Like, because of what I grew up in in San Diego, I boycotted studying Aqidah throughout my entire studies. Like, I, I didn't touch it while I was in Egypt. It was only after I came back that I was like, okay, I actually need to study this. And I need to have some idea of what I'm talking about in it. And since 2015, I started trying to spend a little bit more time in it. But uh, I actually, I was like, I'm not touching this at all. I don't want, I don't care, you know? And that was a mistake. We do need to know it, uh, but we don't need to argue about it. And that's true about most things in Islamic studies. We need to know, we don't need to argue. People spend too much time arguing. Just know from, a, from good, clean sources that are connected to the history, what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to believe, and then do it. That's basically what it comes down to, right? You don't need to argue about it all the time. Don't need to tell people about it all the time. Don't need to like posture and take big positions and all this kind of stuff. It's not doing anything. So, Allah help us. All right, anyone else? Sallallahu wa sallam 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 wa